2: the nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts I'm John Weiner. today we'll talk about Donald Trump with Tony Schwartz he knows a lot about Trump he wrote Trump's best-selling memoir the art of the deal it spent 48 weeks on the times bestseller list in in 1987 and more than a million copies have been sold that'll be later in this hour Also, maybe you heard the news on Monday. Trump's campaign chief, Paul Manafort, was arrested and charged with multiple felonies by special counsel Robert Mueller. He faces 20 years in prison for money laundering. But what does this tell us about the Trump campaign's collusion with the Russians? Our Bob Dreyfus will explain. But first, Republicans and Trump after the indictments. Now that Trump's campaign chief, Paul Manafort, has been charged with multiple felonies by special counsel Robert Mueller, now that Manafort faces 20 years in prison for money laundering, now will Republicans in Congress overcome their timidity about Trump? They know what a terrible president he is, but they have been refusing to say so publicly. But last week, Republican Senators Bob Corker of Tennessee and Jeff Flake of Arizona finally said what a lot of us have longed to hear from those in their position. For comment, we turn to Michelle Goldberg. She's an op-ed columnist at the New York Times. She's also written for Slate and for The Nation, where she was a senior contributing writer. She's written several award-winning books, most recently The Goddess Pose, The Audacious Life of Indra Devi, The Woman Who Helped Bring Yoga to the West. It's out now in paperback. Michelle Goldberg, welcome to the program.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
2: So just to review, before Monday's indictments were announced, last week uh, Bob Corker told CNN that Trump would be remembered for debasement of our nation, that's a quote. And later that day, Jeff Flake announced he wouldn't be running for re-election, and he excoriated Trump on the Senate floor, uh, denouncing the administration's, quote, personal attacks, threats against principles, freedoms, and institutions, the flagrant disregard for truth and decency. Uh, That's a quote from Senator Flake, but... Michelle Flake voted with Trump ninety-one percent of the time. Uh, that's why the Think Progress website said Jeff Flake is no hero. I wonder if you agree with that.
0: I disagree, or I, I I disagree with using that metric as a a sign of somebody's ability or somebody's willingness to stand up to Trump. Because my feeling is that these people like Flake, like Corker. Should be judged for doing what they think is right as opposed to what we as liberals think is right. So, on the one hand, it's easy to say, like, yes, of course they should vote against the destruction of the Affordable Care Act, or of course they should vote against some of these terrible far right judges. But from their point of view, those are good things. You don't think that casting those votes is an immoral act or an act of capitulation, right? So it, I, I don't think that you can expect conservatives to vote for non-conservative things or to vote against policy priorities. So, To me, what counts is whether they're willing to stand up to Trump, both rhetorically, but I think more importantly on issues like the firing of Bob Mueller, whether they're willing to consider legislation to restrict Trump's ability to um, conduct a nuclear first strike, whether they're willing to do, again, like not what I think is right, but what we know they think is right.
2: Well, the nation has published many pieces over the last year, pointing out all the ways Trump is the logical culmination of what the Republican Party has been doing for decades You want to just remind us what that argument is and then tell us what you think about it?
0: Well, I mean, it's certainly true that the Republican Party has been engaged in this, like, systematic derangement of the American people, the systematic creation of an entire alternative reality that, you know, I think I called it in my piece, this berserk postmodern relativism (laughs) that turns every question of truth into question of, like, power and, quote-unquote, Liberal bias. Obviously, the Republican Party has been stoking racial tensions and playing to white racial resentment. It's um, stoked the culture war to garner support for economic policies that are really damaging often to its own constituents. And so, certainly, the Republican Party, I think, has laid the groundwork for Donald Trump. At the same time, I think it's a mistake to see Donald Trump as just a more vulgar type of traditional Republican. I think that his authoritarianism is something of a different kind. And so although, you know, I think you can kind of hold the Republican Party accountable, again, for laying the groundwork for him, I also think that there are real reasons why a conservative like Jeff Flake would be as alarmed by Donald Trump's authoritarianism as a, a liberal or a progressive. And there's a scholar whose work I found helpful in thinking some of this through, who, who basically has said that there are three types of conservatives. There are what she calls, um, her name is Karen Stenner, and she, she you know, talks about there are authoritarians, there are economic libertarians, and Randian-type people, and then there are what she calls status quo conservatives, By which she means people who are who are averse to social change, and one of her insights, which I think is really important, is that although there seems to be sometimes a lot of overlap between people who are averse to social change and people who are averse to social difference, to like diversity, people who are you know who who want kind of a lot of who basically want a society where people look the same, act the same, believe the same. Those two things aren't identical. And in certain cases, you can find people who really who believe in genuine conservatism as can be allies against authoritarianism because they don't believe in scrapping all of the norms and structures of liberal democratic society.
2: But here I have a question. If Trump's authoritarianism threatens genuine conservative ideals, why haven't there been more genuine conservatives doing what Jeff Flake and Bob Corker have done?
0: Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. Some because they're cynics and the and they were sort of always closet authoritarians and they were sort of always in it for the racism as opposed to in it for the tax cuts. Some of it because they believe that going along to get along will allow them to accomplish their policy priorities. You know, which in some cases might even be true. They are more likely to get their massive tax cuts as long as Trump sort of stumbles on an office. And then there's a lot of people that are that are scared. And in some ways, what happened to Jet Flake becomes an object lesson. Because I remember, you know, at the beginning of this nightmare, I and a lot of other people kept thinking, why aren't more people speaking out? Why aren't Republicans standing up to Trump and kind of reaping all the glory that would automatically ensue from doing that? Yeah. But in fact, we see that there isn't a huge amount of glory to be had, right? Liberals aren't racing to lay laurels at at Jeff Flake's feet and he's kind of been abandoned and marginalized by his own party. This political career that he has spent his life building is now over and part of me thinks he's going to be fine. (laughs) He has like to be a rich and successful man and this is not too much to it's not too much to expect people to make that kind of sacrifice for the good of their country. But it's also understandable to me why a lot of people aren't willing to do it.
2: I've also heard the argument made by Republicans that they don't want to do what Jeff Flake and Bob Corker have done, break with the president, because they will be replaced by people much worse than they are, and therefore it's in the interest of goodness that they remain. I wonder if you agree that that's a, a good reason to stick for Republicans to stick with Trump.
0: No, I don't agree. I mean, I do. I, I agree that that's an argument. And I've and I've heard that, too. I think that that argument is an argument that can be made for complicity in almost everything. Yeah. And people have made that argument for collaboration kind of throughout the history of authoritarianism. And there might be some truth in it. But I think that, you know, when we look back at some of these regimes that we all know, of horror. We can all kind of say clearly that they, that, that was that, that was not the moral decision, right? It, it seems kind of clear in retrospect, but the right thing to do is when you're faced with a regime like that. Masi Getson argues that we should carry those lessons over to this incipient authoritarian regime.
2: Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Roy Moore, the Republican Senate candidate from Alabama, has said that Keith Ellison, Democrat who represents Minneapolis, should not be in Congress because he is a Muslim. I heard on the radio today that there's only one Republican senator to criticize Roy Moore for saying that, Jeff Flake. What do you make of that?
0: It just shows you how far gone the Republican Party is and how kind of far they've traveled down the path of hateful extremism and, ext- and also cynicism, cynicism as well as fanaticism, right? Because they might privately think that Roy Moore is a clown, but they're all willing to embrace him if it means, again, one more vote for tax cuts yeah. in the Senate. But it's really, it's terrifying to me. I wrote about Roy Moore over a decade ago in my first book when he was a cult figure after being removed as the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court because of his refusal to remove this like giant monument to the Ten Commandments that he'd installed in the Alabama courthouse. And even then when he was kind of a cult figure on the right, I thought that there was kind of frightening proto-fascist elements in, in the movement around him. And to be honest, even though I think I was, accused of, I was accused of of a little bit of hysteria in that book, at the time I wrote that book, I could have never imagined a world in which Roy Moore would be in the U.S. Senate. But we just, in this age of Trump, we just become progressively more and more inured to things that used to be unthinkable.
2: Last question. We're talking one day after the indictments of uh, Manafort were announced. Do you see any signs that more Republicans in the Senate or the House will break with Trump in the wake of the uh, indictments?
0: No. People tell me privately that they think that if he tried to fire Mueller or pardon Manafort, that that might lead to action among Republicans. I mean, Democrats I've spoken to in Congress are fairly confident of that. But uh, I don't think that the dynamic that leads Republicans to support Trump has changed in part because his base is still with him and there's still kind of a huge political price to be paid for anyone who declares independence.
2: Michelle Goldberg, she wrote about Jeff Flake for the New York Times op-ed page this week. Michelle, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for talking with us.
0: Thank you so much.
2: It's time to talk about Donald Trump with Tony Schwartz. He knows a lot about Trump. He wrote Trump's best selling memoir, The Art of the Deal, in 1987. It spent 48 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, 13 of them at number one. More than a million copies have been sold. Tony's also written other best selling books, including The Way We're Working Isn't Working. He's CEO and founder of the Energy Project. That's a consulting firm that helps individuals and organizations solve intractable problems by widening their worldview. Now he's writing about his experience working as Trump's ghostwriter. His essay, I Wrote the Art of the Deal with Donald Trump, is featured in the new book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, edited by Bandy Lee. That book was number four on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been on the list now for four weeks. Tony Schwartz, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks, John.
2: How much time did you spend with Donald Trump when you were working on Art of the Deal?
3: Well, I spent 18 months from start to finish, and during the majority of that time, I was essentially sitting in his office on an extension phone, listening to him talk to the vast range of people who he would over the course of the day. And then when he wasn't in the office, I was usually traveling with him wherever it happened to be that he was going. So I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with Trump.
2: And this was before Trump became a best-selling author, before he was a star on reality TV, long before he ran for president. How different was he in the mid-'80s compared to the man we see now?
3: Well, until several months ago, I would have said not all that different, maybe until late in the campaign or shortly after he uh, assumed office, meaning that He was always a first and foremost, 100% self-absorbed, incapable of interest in other human beings and completely self-referential so that he viewed any event through the lens of its impact on him or whether he was the central player in it. Even 30 years ago, he had an incredibly short attention span. Lying was almost... Second nature to him, and he did it as easily as most of us uh, you know drink a glass of water, so all of those things have turned out to be very similar all throughout his life, and he himself has said i 'm pretty much the same person at seventy that I was at seven, and I, I believe that 's true Wow having said that, having said that, I think that he has moved to a darker place he was Non-ideological when I knew him. He contributed to candidates from both parties. He was basically a social liberal and otherwise had no politics, partly because he was fundamentally ignorant, didn't know much about anything because his attention span was so short that he never really could read. Today, I believe he actually has adopted a pretty hard right set of beliefs. I, I have reluctantly come to the conclusion that he believes what he says now, and that the reason it's happened is because the base of people who still will love and adore him are on the far right, and that's what compels him the most. So I think he's drifted into that for more emotional or psychological reasons than for political or ideological reasons.
2: In your essay in the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, you say that his sense of self-worth is forever at risk, and that his successes always seem ephemeral to him. But now he's president. You know, tens of millions of people voted for him. He's the most powerful man in the world. Shouldn't he feel an immense sense of self-worth now?
3: In some ways, it's a more precarious place to be as the most powerful person, because everybody wants to knock you off that perch, or it's easy if you have a somewhat paranoid character to assume that that's the case. And that is precisely what he assumes. And now I think there's some pretty significant evidence that actually, uh, he could be knocked off that top of that hill at the same time. What's really at the heart of this is the fact that he just never grew up with a sense that there was anything substantive and meaningful inside him to make him feel okay about himself and therefore came to depend or has come to depend all throughout his life on external validation. He's not that different from a lot of us who get very externally focused and uh, struggle with the issue of self-worth. It's just that his is so much more extreme.
2: And can you explain why that is in the months that you spent with him? Did you get any insight into how he got to be this way?
3: Well, I did. You know, I'm going to proffer a psychological interpretation for what it's worth. And obviously, I'm not trained as a psychologist, so this is really more from... Being a journalist and an observer and interested in human nature. But my my feeling is that he had a very brutal childhood. And it's not my feeling, it's a fact. He had a very, very brutal father who was only interested in the toughness and success, external success that he had or that anybody around him had. And that's what he measured everything by. And I think to survive him, Trump felt he had to outdo him, and he had to be not only more successful, but he had to be tougher and rougher and all of those things. And I think Fred, his father, had no real inner life, and Trump himself has no inner life. And in the absence of that, you look for other ways to feel safe and secure, to feel valuable. Uh, We all do that because it's a human need, and out of that, what I would call deprivation of his childhood, and I'm not suggesting people should feel sorry for him, I'm just making an observation, the deprivation of his childhood via his father and the fact that his mother was essentially absent, and finally, the fact that his older brother, in the face of this brutal father, became an alcoholic and died at a very early age, all of that was a message to Trump to always kind of see the world through the lens of win-lose. If you win, you're okay. If you lose, you're obliterated. And that's the worldview that has preoccupied him for 70 years.
2: So everything he sees in life is a contest that he has to win. Now he won the presidency, but when you were working with him on Art of the Deal, his Atlantic City casinos were going broke, banks were refusing to bail him out. He wasn't a winner at that point. In fact, you might call him a loser, How did he deal with that?
3: The same way he does now, uh, which is to offload blame, to make others responsible for any setback, to reinvent the facts to fit his view of himself, to have habituated himself to the power of positive thinking. He is the epitome of the power of positive thinking in the sense that in the face of incontrovertible evidence that something is so and would in turn diminish him, he's capable of pretending or reinventing those facts so that he ends up portraying himself as a winner. Now, deep, deep down, but it's very deep. I think that's a reaction against the feeling that is persistent in him, which is that he's a loser, but his everyday experience of it is I can turn anything into a win. And just look at what's just happened recently with the indictment of three of the people who uh, worked in his campaign. And in spite of that, he is out there on every front making the case that actually it's really not him. It didn't happen to him. The people who are saying this can't be believed. He's got other people saying that uh, Mueller is prejudiced or... Not fit to be doing the job that he is, so you know he attacks that's how he that's how he protects himself. He attacks all the time
2: so if the Mueller investigations proceed the way it looks like they're going to, and more evidence will come out about the Trump campaign's uh, collusion, and more of trump's associates will make deals to cooperate with the prosecutors, and maybe if Congress moved toward impeaching Trump, do you think at that point he might become more cautious, more conciliatory in a defensive mode?
3: No, not a chance in
2: hell. It isn't within his control. You know, he
3: operates most of the time, particularly when he's feeling under threat, and he is certainly feeling under threat right now, from a survival perspective. I have felt from the day Mueller was named special prosecutor that the end game here is that Trump will get indicted at some point or will have to make some kind of deal to resign in order to avoid being indicted. Now, it is conceivable that he could be indicted or that he could be threatened with indictment and still not resign because he continued to kind of believe in his grandiosity that he could never actually get convicted but this is going to get much much worse for him and it's very much what we saw in watergate which is follow the money i don't know that trump will be will be brought down by what happened in russia and i don't pretend to know what happened you know what, what to what extent he was or wasn't involved in the russia situation but i do know that there is a ton of deals that he made over 30 years that presumably Mueller is exploring and he has access to all the financial documents including his tax returns which he either has or i i assume he has them already because it's not that hard in his role in his position to get them so there's going to be this is going to be a really awful time for trump and the really bad thing john about that is If it's awful for Trump, he's not going to keep it to himself. He's going to inflict it on us. And that is very, very worrisome. What he does with North Korea, how he makes decisions in order to deflect attention away from the threat he's feeling, all of that is something every one of us should be concerned about.
2: Tony Schwartz. He wrote Donald Trump's monster bestseller, The Art of the Deal, and he's a contributor to the new book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. It's been on the bestseller list now for three weeks, starting at number four. Tony, thanks so much. Thank you. Maybe you heard the news. On Monday, Trump's campaign chief, Paul Manafort, was arrested and charged with multiple felonies by special counsel Robert Mueller. He faces 20 years in prison for money laundering. But what does this tell us about the Trump campaign's collusion with the Russians? For that, we turn once again to Bob Dreyfus. Of course, he's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone. He also has written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, and Salon. Bob Dreyfus, welcome back. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, many times over the last many months, you've said here on this show that Paul Manafort was likely to be the first to be indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller. Tell us about these indictments. Trump says they have nothing to do with him or his campaign. Is he right about that?
1: Well, you know, yes and no. You can understand mostly that these are the first steps in Mueller's prosecution and the first indictments, certainly not the last. And I mean, this needs to be sorted out because you have both Manafort and Gates, his deputy Rick Gates, um, indicted and and, uh, arrested yesterday. Then there's a a second set of legal documents, a plea agreement with a guy named George Papadopoulos, which we can discuss after this.
2: Yes.
1: But the, the Manafort thing is important for several reasons. He's somebody who's been associated with Trump for decades. He's a a fixture in Washington as a lobbyist and a Wheeler dealer. Uh, He's been involved for nearly 15 years with Ukraine and a whole bunch of Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs. He worked on behalf of pro-Russian politicians in Ukraine, in particular, from about 2004 onwards. And he was under investigation by the FBI since 2014 on a set of charges that I'm sure dovetail with the charges that Mueller has brought. All of this was known to Trump when he hired Manafort uh, officially as part of his campaign in the spring of last year, uh, eventually becoming campaign manager and then being forced to resign in August when more information was published about his Ukraine connections. So this is a guy who played a a central role in Trump's election campaign in 2016. So did Rick Gates, the deputy of of Paul Manafort. And undoubtedly the purpose of these charges against those two individuals is not just to put them in jail, although certainly they'll be facing jail time, but to get them to flip, to to turn state's evidence to tell Mueller and his prosecutors what they know about Trump's possible pattern of collusion with Russians during the Russian uh, hacking and leaking attack last year. They're really not interested ultimately in in prosecuting Manafort and Gates. They want to find out if the Trump campaign itself, and particularly the, the president, knew and cooperated with or encouraged the Russian efforts to affect the election last year. Um, so, so they're you know they've got bigger targets. Like any kind of RICO investigation or organized crime effort or something else, you go after the lower down guys, and then you try to get the, them to turn in the, the higher ups.
2: Well, the indictment of Manafort includes, I think it's 12 counts, including failing to register as a foreign agent, laundering money, failing to report foreign income, a tax violation. It includes a conspiracy charge, which is broadly about misleading the government. These crimes carry a possible sentence of 20 years. Uh, If you were Manafort, how worried would you be at this point? Well,
1: I think his, you know, his whole life is circling the drain right now. So uh, if I were he, uh, I would try to get the best deal I could get to get either a lighter sentence or, you know, immunity to, to go off scot-free if he could turn in uh, other members of Trump and, and certainly his, his family, his, Trump's two sons and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, Ivanka, his daughter, And the people immediately around Trump, which is the the innermost circle of Trump world, those are the people who, you know, they would like to nail. It was Manafort, uh, as we talked about on your program once before, who took part, along with Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner, both of them family members, in that famous meeting at Trump Tower in June of 2016, where they met with a delegation of Russians who were bringing quote, dirt, unquote, about Hillary Clinton to to the Trump campaign.
2: Well, on the same day that we saw the arrests of Manafort and his assistant, Mueller also released a plea agreement with this Trump policy advisor who we weren't familiar with before, George Papadopoulos, who pleaded guilty to making false statements to investigators about his dealings with the Russian government and its agents during the campaign. These are two separate cases. One of the Trump campaign people is pleading guilty and probably won't go to jail. Uh, Manafort is facing uh, 20 years. What's the significance of the guy who pleaded, George Papadopoulos, a name we really haven't talked about before?
1: It has been known for a while that Papadopoulos tried to arrange a meeting between Trump and Putin and proposed that to the Trump campaign last year. What we didn't know was the extent and the scope of his contacts with the Russians, which went on for months and months during 2016, a series of contact with Russian intermediaries and Russian officials. And in that, we learn that the Russians told Papadopoulos that they had dirt on Clinton including thousands of emails now what's important about that is that they told him that they had these emails long before any of us knew that the russians had any emails at all from clinton the the hacking the break-in to the democratic national committee email system occurred as early as the second half of 2015 in other words two years ago and During all that time and into 2016, the Russians apparently had access to a bunch of these DNC emails. That's what the Russians are referring to. That's what they told Papadopoulos. And that means that the Trump campaign knew, even before any of us knew, that the Russians had broken into the DNC, that they had stolen these emails. I I think that's extremely significant. It's a sign that when... Uh, Kushner and Trump Jr. and uh, Manafort met with the Russians at that Trump Tower meeting that they already knew, or the campaign already knew, that the Russians had access to emails from the Democrats. So there's beginning to be a pattern emerging here of awareness and of willingness to meet with Russians to talk about this stuff. This, again, I should say, is just the beginning of this investigation.
2: So the Papadopoulos plea deal is about the campaign colluding with the Russians. The it is indictment is not. One of the most fascinating things about the Papadopoulos plea deal is that apparently it was made months ago and has been kept secret by Mueller, who only released the information the same day uh, that Manafort was arrested and charged. So we have this contrast between a plea agreement, which is about the Russians, and an indictment which is not. Presumably, in the months that have passed since Papadopoulos made this plea agreement in secret, he has been cooperating and telling Mueller— A lot of things that Mueller would like to know and that we would like to know. Have I got that right? That's exactly right. Plus, he's only one person that we know about. There could be two or five or ten or a dozen or more
1: people who are also cooperating with Mueller, whose, you know, shoes of this millipede are yet to drop. Papadopoulos was arrested on July 27th of this year, one day after July 26th, when the FBI raided Manafort's home in that pre-dawn raid and collected uh, evidence, which they then used in the indictment against him. Ever since that arrest at the in the end of July, yes, he's been cooperating because he doesn't want to go to jail, although he still might. And we don't know whether people around Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor who's possibly you know the next big cue to drop, whether he or his people or his son or his associates, whether they're cooperating. We don't really know to what extent Manafort himself may have tried to cooperate and maybe didn't go far enough and Mm -hmm. then got indicted. All of this is yet to unfold, and it could be months and months more of this kind of news, which will, among other things, divert and cripple the Trump administration, undermine the White House, divide and fracture the Republican Party and all of this going into an election year. So there's a huge political dimension to this, and at the end of the road comes Mueller's final report, which could come after a dozen more indictments and other charges, but then he'll issue a report laying out what all this means, and that could plop into the lap of the Republican Party and Congress right in the middle of an election year, and then every Republican is going to have to choose. Do I rally around Trump amid public outrage over what Mueller concludes, or do I condemn Trump and face the voters, you know, as a renegade, uh, anti-Trump Republican? Either one of those will not be too palatable for Republicans running for office. So, you know, this has huge political implications for the election next year. We don't know whether Trump could be impeached. He's losing a lot of support. Obviously, among Republicans on Capitol Hill, some of whom have spoken quite aggressively in recent weeks against him, we don 't know whether Trump will decide this isn 't worth it and i 'm going to quit because it 's no fun anymore and and of course, that won 't protect him from prosecution, but you know he may decide that he 's just had it so I mean this is a an enormous political development, and it 's only just beginning to get underway
2: it 's only just beginning. Bob Dreyfus writes a weekly column on the Russia investigations. Read it at thenation.com. Bob, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
2: Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports Podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at the Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the Me Too campaign and sexual abuse and assault in the world of sports. That's this week on the Edge of Sports Podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com/slash Edge of Sports. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.